Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden coming to you live from the WORT studios in Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The leader of the Wisconsin Senate says he does not want to dissolve the government agency that administers elections, reports the Associated Press. Republican Senator Devin LeMayhew, leader of the state Senate, tells the Associated Press he opposes, quote, blowing up, um, quote, blowing up, unquote, the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. That comes as others in his party have called for it to be dissolved. LeMayhew helped to create the commission in 2015 after legislative Republicans then reshuffled how the state's ethics and elections rules are administered. But LeMayhew also says he expects the GOP legislature to take up a handful of election administration bills in the coming season or session. Those bills would limit voting access in Wisconsin, placing a litany of restrictions on the handling of absentee ballots. In other news, out of the GOP state legislature, a bill in the legislature would allow those with concealed carry permit to keep guns in their cars on school grounds. Doing so currently is a felony. The bill's authors say the bill is aimed at folks who currently have to go out of their way to drop off guns at home to avoid bringing them to school, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. But the bill has its share of critics, including the Wisconsin Association of School Boards, which says it opposes any measure to legalize bringing weapons into school zones. If it passes the legislature, the bill would head to the governor's desk and would likely be vetoed by Tony Evers, a Democrat who has pushed for stronger gun safety measures and red flag laws in Wisconsin. A federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit against the National Guard over the basing of F-35 fighter jets in Madison, also reports the Wisconsin Journal Sentinel or Wisconsin State Journal. The lawsuit brought by Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin alleges that the National Guard did not fully account for the effects of new construction needed to base F-35s at Truax Airfield, which abuts residential areas on the north side. The State Journal reports that Safe Skies Clean Water is a is weighing whether to appeal. Meanwhile, meanwhile, another lawsuit filed by the same group seeks a more detailed study of the environmental effects of the F-35 basing decision. Child care providers across the state are seeing more closures due to COVID. That's according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The, the Growing Tree, a child care provider in New Glarus, says they've been operating at 50% capacity doing, due to staffing shortages and COVID concerns. The Growing Tree says they've lost over $110,000 in 2020 due to the pandemic and were able to cover those costs with federal relief funds. They've applied for another round of funding but were denied. Child care providers have been short-staffed since even before the pandemic, with around 20,000 licensed child care slots being closed over the last decade. In a time of testing shortages, the Madison School District is giving out 15,000 PCR COVID tests to MMSD students, staff, and families. But those tests expire in just five days on January 10th. The Capital Times reports that the tests were given to the school district by the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. You can find testing locations on the district's website. Students, staff, and families are encouraged to register beforehand, but that is not required. 
In other school-related news, only one seat on the Madison School Board will be contested this spring since the filing deadline for candidates to submit paperwork for the spring elections closed yesterday. Three seats on the Madison School Board are up for re-election. Incumbent Board President Ali Muldrow will run uncontested. Candidate Nichelle Nichols is running uncontested for the seat vacated by Ananda Marilli. Meanwhile, a third seat being vacated by incumbent Chris Carusi has two candidates, Laura Simkin and Shepard Janeway, whose name will be listed as Shepard Joyner on the ballot. Now for today's COVID update. Wisconsin broke a disturbing record today, reporting more than 10,000 new COVID cases yesterday, bringing the state total up to uh, 1,023,729 cases of the virus. Here in Dane County, 811 people have tested positive. The new record brings the seven-day average to 6,260 cases per day, only around 200 cases below the seven-day average record. According to our seven-day testing average, one in four people who receive a test are testing positive. There were also two new deaths from the virus across the state yesterday as well, to add to the 25 deaths reported over the weekend. A total of 10,198 people have died from the virus in Wisconsin so far. 62.2% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine, with 58.3% having received both doses. And now on to today's top stories. The city of Madison grew 16% over the past decade, according uh, adding, excuse me, more than 36,000 residents. That's according to 2021 estimates by the Census Bureau. The Madison metro area is the fastest growing in the state, and that isn't expected to slow down anytime soon. But with growth rates, but with growth comes changes in the cityscape and larger apartment buildings on the horizon. But a new plan adopted last night by the Madison Common Council is aimed at retaining a neighborhood atmosphere on Madison's south side. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has the story. At around midnight last night, the Madison Common Council officially adopted the South Madison plan to add more single-family homes to the city's south side. The plan, created by the City Plan Commission, will affect the neighborhoods between Fish Hatchery Road, Wingra Creek, the Beltline, and Lake Monona, containing the area around the Alliant Energy Center and South Park Street. It looks to prevent displacement and gentrification in the community as more and more large apartment buildings are built across Madison to accommodate a growing population. Southside residents pointed towards East Washington Avenue as an example of what to avoid. In a 2019 survey by the American Community Survey, a part of the U.S. Census Bureau, 79.2% of homes in South Madison were occupied by renters, as opposed to 53% across the entire city. The survey also found that there were more multifamily homes in South Madison compared to the rest of the city. The plan was first created in October of 2021, and the original version included more room for multifamily homes as a way to address housing issues in Madison. After comment from the community, however, the plan was changed to focus more on single-family homes. One area of contention during the meeting was the Thorstead area near Wingra Creek. A last-minute amendment by Alder Tag Evers, the amendment would add more townhouses to the area, as well as more residential units and two mixed-use buildings. 
Evers says that the extra building will help the community to grow. Owner ownership, in fact, is the key and it's the big advance in this plan. But we need to be careful not to make the mistake of conflating or making equal somehow or another home ownership with single family housing. There's no reason why we would want to limit ownership only to those who purchase a single family home. The key question before us, why shouldn't we expand the option of affordable wealth building to a greater number of our residents, particularly given the high cost and the relative scarcity of public resources that we're gonna have available, particularly in, in these tough budget times. We've been told it's going to cost a lot to subsidize these units. So let's be efficient. Let's get more bang for our buck. But Alder Sherry Carter, whose district contains the areas impacted by the plan, says that residents are concerned about the additional density. Well, I think that they're concerned about packing, and usually packing leads to other things that are not positive. So this was an opportunity to really create a neighborhood that would have been well-planned, a neighbor that neighborhood that reflected an essence of a neighborhood. Evers' amendment was passed by the council, a compromise made by Carter to get the plan passed. Another issue raised by the community was the addition of 12-story buildings along John Nolan Drive. Residents were concerned that such large buildings could affect the wildlife in Olin and Turnville Point Park. Carter says that the buildings were another needed compromise, and if the buildings were going to go anywhere, along John Nolan was the best place for them. Carter praised the community's participation with the plan and said that the future of South Madison looks bright. I think with the new things that are coming in, like the Black Business Hub, like the Center of Black Excellence, of course, you know, Madison College was the first to come in and build something, but with all of that, it's giving South Madison and their residents that energy that we haven't seen in a long time. It will take 10 to 15 years for any results of the plan to be seen. But as Madison's population is expected to continue to grow, the South Side will remain a smaller community against the busier downtown areas of the city. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. The water in Lake Michigan is getting saltier, as the lake's tributaries are carrying more than one million metric tons of chloride into the freshwater body each year. According to a new University of Wisconsin report, the lake's salinity hasn't reached a critical level yet, but there are concerns over increasing salt levels in smaller bodies of water in the state. Jonah Chester with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The Great Lakes hold about one-fifth of the Earth's fresh water, but a new report indicates they're getting saltier and says that's reason for concern. Lake Michigan used to sit at a salinity level of 1 to 2 milligrams of chloride per liter of lake water. Now that concentration has risen to nearly 15 milligrams per liter. Hillary Dugan with the University of Wisconsin Center for Limnology says it's still a relatively low level for a water body as large as Lake Michigan, but rising chloride levels could pose problems for plants and animals in the smaller lakes and tributaries that feed into it. If anything, we're just hurting those native freshwater species that are adapted to, you know, Wisconsin waters that are basically have no salt in them. And now, you know, we've increased the salt 10, 100 fold, depending on, you know, what body of water we're looking at. 
She says salt levels have to hit roughly 250 milligrams per liter to pose a serious risk to plants, animals, and humans, and notes virtually all the chloride pollution is from road salt. Dugan adds people can reduce pollution in lakes and streams this winter by limiting their use of salt on roads, driveways, and sidewalks. Unlike other chemical pollutants, Dugan says salt pollution isn't irreversible. She explains over the course of their life cycle, lakes and streams will gradually flush it out of their system. Salt stays dissolved in water, and so lakes and rivers will naturally flush themselves out. So what it takes to reduce the salinity is just to stop the amount of salt that's going into these bodies of water. The report found about 70% of the salt flowing into Lake Michigan comes from just five of the body's 300 tributaries. Dugan says if nothing's done to address the issue, salt concentration in the lake will rise by about one milligram per liter every two to three years. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Time is now 6.19, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. At the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, federal student loan repayment was paused in order to help folks stay financially on their feet. But people will need to start paying those loans back in May. Thankfully, two state departments are teaming up to help people navigate their federal student debt. But all of this left our producer, Nate Weggehout, brimming with questions. Like it or not, federal student loan repayment will start again on May 1st. And I, for one, am terrified. To ease with that impending burden, the Wisconsin Department of Financial Institutions is teaming up with the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protections to help walk folks through the best ways to pay back student loans to avoid scams in the process. With me today is Cheryl Rapp, College Affordability Specialist with the Wisconsin Department of Financial Institutions. Cheryl, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. So one component of repayment is avoiding loan scams. What do these scams look like and what should people paying off debts be on the lookout for? Well, most student loan debt, like relief scammers, target borrowers with like false offers of loan forgiveness or saving from consolidating, stuff like that. So we want to make uh, borrowers aware of these scams and kind of know that there's no upfront fees when it comes to repaying their loans. There's no promise of immediate total loan forgiveness out there for people um, to never uh, give out your FSA ID, username, or password if it's requested. They, no one ever needs that information. You can always reach out to their specific um, servicer that holds their loans and talk to them about questions on the repayments and things like that. So then what are some legitimate repayment options that folks have for their student loans? So there's a lot of different repayment options out there. There's income-based repayment plans, 
There's your standard repayment plans that most borrowers, if you have federal loans, are put into right away. Um, but they can always just call their loan servicer or they can call the Federal Student Aid Office, U.S. Department of Ed, and talk to them about repayment options and repayment plans that are available and right for them. There are forgiveness programs out there for public service loan forgiveness and teacher loan forgiveness programs. So um, a lot of people might have been hearing about the public service loan forgiveness right now, too, because there is a special waiver in place until um, October of 2022 that most people who didn't qualify for public service loan forgiveness could possibly qualify for it now and actually get their loans forgiven um, after their consecutive 120 payments of um, uh, repaying their student loans and everything along those lines. So there are options out there for people. Um, just know that nothing being offered of instantaneous or if you do an upfront fee, um, all of that scams. Those, those don't really exist right now. Now, you mentioned loan forgiveness. What about loan forgiveness? How do folks know if they are eligible to have some of their loans forgiven? So if you are in the public service area, so be it um, government, state, um, counties, if, um, along those lines, if you're um, there, if you go to the Federal Student Aid website, it'll give you the list of waivers and um, how you can qualify for that. And that way, you'll if you're actually working in, like, for instance, I work for a Department of Financial Institutions, state agency. Because of my job, I could qualify for the public service loan forgiveness because I'm a public servant, um, civil servant, working for the state for everybody. And if I had student loans, I could qualify for getting those actually um, forgiven after a consecutive of 120 payments on my um, loans that I've been taken out beforehand. So it's just you there's a process where you actually have to apply for every year. We recommend people going in every year to make sure that the job that they're in still qualifies for that public service loan forgiveness. So just to clarify, you need to make 120 payments before you can apply for the loan forgiveness? No, um that's um sorry, that was my mistake. And you need to have well you can qualify for the public service loan forgiveness, you won't be um, forgiven until you've done your 120 payments. So you don't have to do the 120 payments beforehand. It's a cumulative of 120 payments. Once you have 120 payments done, then whatever's left of your loan um, should be forgiven. Let's talk about tools. What tools are available for people to use to help them best pay off their loans? So one of the tools that we're highlighting is um, the reason for the workshop that we're going to be putting on January 20th and then January 21st. Um, and it, there's a tool that's um, part of Wisconsin Strong Student Loan Repayment Tool, and it was created by Savvy. And um, Savvy is a student loan expert that during this workshop, they'll actually answer questions about the student loan repayment and explain how their tool can help borrowers navigate kind of the complexity of the repayments and figuring out how to possibly lower their payments or put them in the right uh, repayment class. So be it a standard repayment or income-based repayment plan, stuff like that. So one of the tools out there is the Savvy tool that we'll talk about. Um, if you actually go to um, a website that we have, it's a look forward to your future, and it's lookforwardwi.gov. It's part of my college affordability um, specialist stuff. On there, we have a ton of tools and information and resources for student loan borrowers on how to navigate repaying back their loans or um, even those that 
are just about to be freshmen in, in college, kind of the information on how much they should borrow and how to reduce the student loan debt and everything else on there. You mentioned the workshop there, so let me ask you, give me some details on that workshop. Sure. The workshop's going to be, um, we're holding, we're going to repeat it. So the first workshop is on um, Thursday, January 20th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. And then we're going to repeat it again the next day on Friday, January 21st, and that's from 11.30 to 1 p.m. Um, the workshop's going to kind of talk about how to avoid scams um, and then how to use the free repayment tool um, that Savvy is offering, which is the Wisconsin Strong Student Loan Repayment Tool. Um, in a press release that we sent out, there's actually links to register for both of them. Um, and it's uh, an Eventbrite link that will then kind of send out reminders of if you, once you've signed up for it, of the workshop coming up and um, what time is that and all that. And it's a Zoom uh, meeting is what it is, pretty much. All right. A free workshop, free tools. Sounds like just the sort of things that we're going to need here uh, with repaying student loans. So I want to ask you, who is this workshop geared towards? Um, any borrower that has student loans, actually, we recommend. So um, because Repayments have been in forbearance for so long, and they're actually now, instead of originally um, starting up again February 1st, it's been now pushed to May 1st. So we want to get people to start thinking about all those that have student loans, about, okay, start saving for repaying your student loans that you haven't had to worry about in the past two, two and a half years. And we figured, let them know this is free and start preparing for it. And here are options on how to make sure you can afford the payment that um, you're in, what plan you're in for the situation you're in. Because with COVID, a lot of things have changed. Jobs have changed. Changing of everything in general happened. And so it's making sure people are ready to actually start paying back their student loan debt. Well, Cheryl, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, no, we just want to make sure that borrowers know that there's help out there for any questions that you have that's related to the student loans that you have. Um, there's actually an 800 number that we um, put together for the Wisconsin student loan borrowers, and they can reach out to the, um, the 800 number, which is 833-589-0750, with any questions related to um, student loans that they have, and they can talk about the upcoming repayments and how it's going to be starting in May 1st and what they should be prepared for on that end. I've been speaking with Cheryl Rapp, College Affordability Specialist at, with the Wisconsin Department of Financial Institutions. Cheryl, thank you once again for talking with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show, a look at Wisconsin's taxes. We travel back to 1962 with Madison in the 60s and the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with Rob McClure.
And we're coming in with uh, some breaking news here. A crash has closed all northbound lanes of Highway 151 near Sun Prairie. Uh, That's uh, announced by the Wisconsin Department of Transportation. So a crash has closed all northbound lanes of Highway 151 near Sun Prairie. The closure at North Bristol Street started around 5.30 p.m. today and is expected to last roughly two hours, the department said. It's currently unclear whether anyone was injured in the crash. And the time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rob McClure, here along with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. According to a report released today by the Wisconsin Policy Forum, Wisconsin residents are seeing a higher tax burden but lower overall burden. What do these numbers mean? WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Jason Stein, research director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum and the author of the new report about the project. I'm on the line with Jason Stein, research director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum and the author of their newest report. Jason, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So starting things off, how can our tax burden rise, but the total burden fall in one year? What exactly is the difference between tax burden and total burden? Sure. So what we look at every year at the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and going back to the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance, we've done this for decades, is the all- local, state, and federal taxes that are paid by by individuals and businesses in Wisconsin. And then we compare that to what the collective incomes of people in the state were every year. And that sort of gives us a sense of taxes as a share of people's ability to pay. And what we saw this year is for the first time in a decade, state the state tax burden went up a little bit uh, from 6.7% to 7%, which is still one of the lowest rec- years on record, but it went up a little bit mostly because of the economic recovery in 2021. But uh, local and federal taxes have continued to go down and are at uh, the lowest levels we have on record. So when you just look at local, state, and federal combined, the tax burden is down. So how do the burdens sort of rise and fall? Yeah, I mean, it's a a couple things. So again, part of it is, is the taxes themselves. So you know, uh, our, our taxes being cut, our taxes being increased, and then as well, you know, uh, are things like income taxes rising because, you know, people's incomes are rising or, or corporations are more profitable. And then you've got, you know, what's going on with income. And, you know, what happened uh, this year at the state level is just uh, tax collections just rose more quickly than income. And, you know, to some degree that, that just reflected um, an economic recovery that we saw in 2021 compared to the 2020 and the, the depth of the pandemic, at least, for, at least from the standpoint of the economy. And then uh, we had, you know, continued uh, pretty strong uh, federal support uh, from things like the American Rescue Plan Act for, for both individuals and businesses. And so, you know, that, that gives us uh, what's going on. Again, state, state tax collections up somewhat, but when you look at what's happening with, with local and federal taxes, again, there the burden has fallen enough that, that overall uh, people are paying the, the lowest amount of their income in, in taxes collectively 
that we've seen in, you know, the 50 years of records that we have going back to the early 70s. Now, moving over to the report there, you mentioned local government. Uh, in, in the report, you talk about how they're taking a bit of a hit here, leaning on federal pandemic aid to help with their tightening budgets. What does this mean for our local communities with the lowering of the total burden? Yeah, so in Wisconsin, local government, uh, the property tax is almost the only game in town in, in terms of taxes. Counties do have a sales tax. Uh, and there's some other little cats and dogs out there, but really it's the vast majority, like more than 90% of the taxes that local governments get are property taxes. And the state has, whether it's schools, cities, counties, the technical colleges, the state has pretty tight limits put on those local governments that they need to go to a, a voter referendum to get around by and large. Um, you know, what we have seen is that um that has meant you know property tax the overall property tax burden has been you know falling very steadily um and you know i think this is going to pose for now local governments have received very significant um federal pandemic relief aid that runs you know even in some cases they'll still be able to draw on for another couple of years but you know that's one time money that's not ongoing support for their budgets and some point that's going to be gone and you know we have in the meantime pretty substantial inflation so you know that's that's going to be a challenge for local services in wisconsin which are pretty critical i mean if you're talking about education if you're talking about firefighting if you're talking about law enforcement that's something that in the state of wisconsin those things happen almost entirely uh, at the local level at least if we're talking about k-12 education uh, firefighting and police that's it's really local functions, and they're they're critical ones. So I want to talk about that K-12 education there. In the conclusion of the report, you do talk about the effect that is it is having on our public schools. If things continue the way they are, what will our government need to do in order to keep the school districts running smoothly? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I think have been critical to, to many uh, districts and, and certainly to the district here in Madison is a referenda. So, I mean, you're seeing a vast number and size of school referenda pass around the state over the past several years. And that's certainly, again, the case in Madison where we recently passed referenda for the operating budget as well as, as a capital referenda for improvements mainly to district high schools. And so those are, you know, the, the referenda to some degree have helped many districts meet their budgets and, you know, have some inflationary growth in their spending. But, you know, one challenge is that not every district around the state, you know, more than 60% in recent years have passed a referenda, but not, not all of them can. And so one concern I think that is out there is, does that provide some difference between communities that have the means or just the willingness to approve a school referendum and and students who, you know, live in another community that, that is unable or unwilling to do that. So I want to break this down a little bit. What does all of these numbers mean to the average middle-class resident of, say, Wisconsin? I mean, it, I'd say two things, and they're, they're somewhat contradictory. One is that when you look at us as a whole, you know, as a collective group, or if you look on average at the state, taxes have, have really never been lower 
at least in terms of people's ability to pay them, at least in, in most people's lifetimes. The flip side of that is that for the taxes that people notice the most, and so that would be their annual property tax payment on their home and their, their annual income tax return, taxes remain relatively high in Wisconsin for both you know, your typical homeowner as well as for a middle-income family. And, you know, a lot of the taxes where we tend to be much lower, like sales taxes, are, are the kinds of taxes that generally fly under the radar because you're, you're just paying them a little bit of, at a time over the course of the year and not in one big sell swoop. Well, Jason, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share? No, I mean, I think the main thing, again, is, you know, some of your listeners may hear this and say, you know, although property taxes in Madison, you know, were pretty modest increases this year. But, you know, your listeners may to some degree say, well, wait a second, my, my property taxes, when I compare them to my relatives who, who live out of state, they're very high. And, you know, I think in, largely they're, they're going to be right about that. But, you know, we're, we're looking at it across the board. And again, there, there are going to be other areas like, like sales taxes, for instance, where compared to some other Midwest states, our, our sales taxes in Wisconsin are going to be very, pretty favorable. But people don't necessarily notice that because of just, you know, again, it's, it's not a lump sum payment that they're, they're making on that. So that would be, the, that'd be the, the last thing that I would sort of point out for people is, you know, and, and it's the same that in Wisconsin, our, our income tax rates are, are pretty favorable for low-income individuals, but people in more the middle-income areas, so people you know, once you start getting to say, you know, seventy-five thousand dollars for 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 a married couple, uh, in in that range, their income tax rates actually tend to be somewhat higher. Effective income tax rates in Wisconsin tend to be somewhat higher than the national average. So, if if some of your listeners ask themselves, they say, "Well, wait a second, it doesn't seem like my property and income taxes really are that low." You know, they they may have a very valid point about that. But there's sort of a there's a bigger picture when we're looking at this sort of aggregate data that's across all taxpayers and all types of taxes. You know, some of those nuances can be lost. I've been talking with Jason Stein, research director for the Wisconsin Policy Forum and the author of their newest report, State Tax Burden Up, But Overall Burden Still Falling. Jason, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Happy New Year. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, as I observed in the Monday morning forecast, we seem to have finally gotten the seasonal gears unstuck and shifted into something more like winter, uh, at least in terms of temperature in these past few days. But snow has been and continues to be a trickier problem. Of course, during much of the month of December, it was too warm for snow, and the six and a half inches that we did get, which is about half of the normal for the month, I will observe, came in the final days when it did finally get colder. But that heavy, wet snow is now compacted into just a few weather-beaten, icy inches, so uh, not much for skiers to work with anyway, and not much to look at either, I would say. 
Our prospects for additional snow, though, are not especially promising, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, which on the face of it actually seems odd. We're in a pattern in which deep waves are moving west to east across the continent with some regularity, uh, sending the temperatures up and down, obviously, and uh, obviously producing some decent storm circulation since we couldn't get the sort of wind that we saw today without a strong pressure gradient in place. Uh, and indeed, the active pattern is quite evident if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked up on the uh, WORT weather webpage this evening. There you'll get a lovely view of today's uh, storm passing to our north along with its evolution over the past few days from a vigorous gyre off the British Columbia coast at the beginning of the loop, sliding then southeastward across Wyoming and Nebraska before lifting northeastward past us and towards about Georgian Bay, where it is now. Accompanying that surface storm is a deep upper trough, the cold air from which has been howling through here all day long today. And that upper trough streaks west-east in tandem, uh, but is about to give way shortly, or at least after midday Friday, to an upper ridge that's fast on its heels behind, already coming ashore off the Pacific Ocean. So the pattern is obviously quite active, but part of the problem has been and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that residual warm air and upper ridging that's across the southern tier of states is keeping the wave train far enough north that we're not ending up on the northern sides of any of the storm circulations that develop, which is where, to the northern side that is, where the more concentrated precipitation production tends to occur. And because the pattern is so active, with waves moving quickly from west to east, there's isn't quite the degree of moisture return northward off the Gulf of Mexico that we might otherwise see that might be available to give us at least decent lead side precipitation, even if the storm circulations do go to our north. So we'll continue with the kind of uh, theme of big temperature swings over the coming week with a jump upward this uh, Saturday, followed by another cold outbreak then Sunday through Tuesday before what looks to be another warm up late next week. But with this coming weekend storm, which will be passing even further north through Canada than the one today, the only precipitation that I can foresee in the coming seven or eight days is a bit of drizzle or light mixed precipitation later Saturday sometime ahead of the cold front. But back to the forecast for tonight, the gauzy cloud layers that are up between about three and 5,000 feet that have been over us the last several hours will remain largely intact through the night occasionally sporting a flurry or two. The temperatures will drop to the mid or upper single digits on northwesterly winds, which will come down to 10 to 15 miles per hour by dawn. Tomorrow, that dogged low cloud layer looks to hold in place, I think, much of the day, though it may occasionally uh, show the sky through it because it's not very thick. Temperatures will go uh, essentially nowhere tomorrow, maybe up to 10 or slightly above on continued northwesterly winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Slightly better clearing and diminishing winds overnight as the center of the Arctic surface high approaches. That should allow temperatures to drop at least a few degrees below zero. Friday, mostly sunny skies will take us back towards about 10 or so. Not much further than that, I don't think, given reflective snow cover and a short photo period this time of year. Winds will back lightly south on Friday. And those southerly winds will hold us, I think, above zero Friday night and uh, eventually take us, those southerly winds, up into the mid or upper 20s uh, as they increase to 10 to 17 miles per hour on the day Saturday. 
Cloud cover should uh, increase as well, possibly with passing light mixed precipitation later in the day. We'll have another nocturnal cold frontal passage similar to the one last night as we go into Sunday with warm overnight temperatures suddenly crashing down into the single digits by daybreak on Sunday. Then single digit high temperatures, I think, both Sunday and Monday, the way it's looking. At the moment at the airport in Madison, the temperature is 14 degrees. The dew point temperature is 9 uh, broken overcast up at about 2,400 feet. Winds are out of the west at 8 miles per hour, still gusting up above 20 miles per hour from time to time. Uh, barometers at 29.82 inches of mercury and rising briskly. Now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to January 1962, when Madison gets its first black classroom teacher, the UW takes a stand against biased bequests, and the Triangle Urban Renewal Project kicks into high gear. Stu Levitan has the news from 60 years ago this month on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, January 1962 the year is not yet a week old when the university regents vote 5-3 to three to make the UW the first Big Ten school to adopt a policy banning gifts or grants based on bias. As proposed by UW President Conrad Elvium and Vice President Fred Harvey Harrington, the policy, effective immediately, bans gifts with, quote, discriminatory restrictions based on race, color, or creed. It allows for restrictions based on national origin because, as Harrington explains, the campus has the seventh largest foreign student body in the United States and needs to allow for grants for international students. The administration has worked on the policy since last April, when the regents accepted a $100,000 bequest to aid, quote, worthy and needy Gentile Protestant students. Regent Harold A. Connick mockingly moves to add a ban on bias based on sex, which he withdraws after Regent Matt Werner calls the amendment ridiculous and frivolous. Elvium, who in 1930 signed a petition to ban blacks from living in his Nakoma neighborhood, calls the action an example of Wisconsin progress 
and says donors have the right to support any group they wish, but that, quote, such support should not be given through the state of Wisconsin or the university, but given directly to individuals and outside organizations. The only other Big Ten school with such a policy is Illinois, set by statute. The Student Life and Interest Committee votes to allow unmarried undergraduates over the age of 21 to live in the same apartment building as students of the opposite sex, provided there are no shared facilities such as kitchens, common areas, or bathrooms. Previously, only graduate students were allowed this option. And in testimony opposing the proposed abandonment of four Chicago and Northwestern trains, UW Dean of Students Leroy Luberg tells the Interstate Commerce Committee that 20% of university students depend on rail transportation to get between home and Madison. In news from the public schools, Louisiana native Geraldine Bernard becomes the first black classroom teacher in the Madison school system, substituting during the spring semester in several elementary schools, before later permanent assignments at Silver Spring and Aldo Leopold. In fall, three black teachers are hired full-time at schools on the south and west sides. The Board of Education eases its policy against married couples teaching in the city school system, voting unanimously to offer full regular contracts to both husband and wife. Under the old policy, either member in a marriage could hold a regular teaching contract, but the other could have only an emergency contract under special circumstances. The motion to offer full contracts to both husband and wife is made by Arthur Diney Mansfield, the longtime UW baseball coach. It is also Mansfield who makes the motion, also adopted without opposition, to name the new high school on the Far East Side in honor of Senator Robert M. LaFollette Sr. The 1500 pupil school on Flaum Road will cost about $3.3 million and is set to open in September 1963. And there are many more school buildings to come, as the council approves an April referendum for a $9.5 million bond issue for new school construction through 1966. Madison's Urban Renewal Program gets great news to start the year, as the Federal Urban Renewal Administration announces it has approved $7.6 million in grants and loans for the Triangle Project. The money will be used to buy and tear down properties on the 52-acre site, part of the Greater Greenbush neighborhood, largely bordered by South Park, Regent, and West Washington. Exactly two weeks later, demolition begins, with the first building to fall a two-story house at 15 South Murray Street. Ironically, January 18th is also the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Club Laboratori Italia di Mutuo Soccorso e Beneficenza, more commonly known as the Italian Workmen's Club. Its building at 914 Regent Street is just outside the demolition zone. And Mayor Henry Reynolds' proposal to combine the Housing and Redevelopment Authorities moves forward in late January to take effect February 15th. Both authorities unanimously endorse the plan, which involves shared staff and unified management under Redevelopment Director Roger Rupnow. Three stories of planning and development, an ominous sign for the future of the Frank Lloyd Wright-designed Monona Terrace Auditorium and Civic Center, as the group 
Citizens Realistic Auditorium Association announces plans to put a referendum on the spring ballot to terminate the project and seek another site. Since Mayor Henry Reynolds is a former vice president of the group, its chances of getting the referendum on the ballot and the referendum passing are very good. The Plan Commission approves the preliminary plat for a 140-unit apartment project on Northport Drive on the former Bruns Farm, just east of North Sherman Avenue. Although the project owner has not yet been revealed, it is rumored to be the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees planning an integrated rent-controlled development similar to a project it recently completed in Milwaukee. And the city finally decides where the new Central Library will be located, as the council authorizes the purchase of the 200 block of West Mifflin Street, across from the Madison Gas and Electric Company. The new facility is expected to open in 1965, at which time the current library on North Carroll Street, built in 1906 with funds from the Scottish industrialist Andrew Carnegie, will be torn down and replaced by an expanded parking ramp. And this passing of note, George C. Celery, Dean of the College of Letters and Science from 1919 to 1942, dies on his 90th birthday, January 21st. A scholar of Renaissance history, Celery came to Wisconsin as an instructor in 1901 at the invitation of the legendary historian Frederick Jackson Turner. An educational conservative, Celery was acting president after the regents fired President Glenn Frank in 1937. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman was our on-air engineer this evening. Nate Reggie helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>